Hi friends, thank you for tuning in to the Concussion Coach Podcast. I'm Bethany Lewis, the Concussion Coach. I'm a neurological occupational therapist and certified life coach, and I specialize in guiding people through their concussion recovery journey. I am passionate about helping people understand their injury, speed up their recovery, and reclaim control over their life post-concussion. The purpose of this podcast is to help increase awareness of concussions and the impact they can have on a person's life, and to bring hope to people who have suffered a concussion and those who love them. I firmly believe that sharing stories and knowledge about concussions will bring important light and understanding to this misunderstood and often invisible injury. The information in this podcast is meant to bring that awareness and hope and is not meant as medical advice. The opinions shared are those of the interviewees and my own. If you are suffering with lingering concussion symptoms, I have created a concussion coaching program specifically for you. I will be your mentor to guide you through your recovery journey, offering help with understanding and managing your symptoms, setting achievable goals, and learning how to manage your own thoughts and nervous system in order to get control over your life again. If this program sounds like something that would help you or someone you love, sign up for a free consultation. In the consultation, you'll get valuable information and resources and gain hope for your future. Sign up for your free consultation at the link in the show notes or at my website, www.theconcussioncoach.com. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Concussion Coach Podcast. I'm really excited to interview my friend and colleague, Emily Peterson, today. Emily has a bachelor's degree in biology with a neuroscience emphasis and a minor in Mandarin Chinese from BYU-Idaho and completed her graduate studies at BYU. She is conversationally fluent in Mandarin and Bulgarian. She's a licensed speech-language pathologist who specializes in neurocognitive rehabilitation, and her professional career is focused on growing people through cognitive therapy and growing companies through strategic marketing, consulting, and entrepreneurship. Emily and I met through our work at Cognitive FX, where she is a cognitive therapist and I'm an occupational therapist. And at some point, we made the connection that we both lived in Beijing, China at the same time and discovered that we have some mutual friends from our time there. We've been able to attend some of the same reunions of friends who were expats together there at overlapping times. And one time we had one at my house and Emily brought her adorable tiny teacup poodle puppy. <laughs> is that what she is? Is she a teacup poodle? Yeah, teacup golden doodle. Oh, okay. She's the cutest thing. She brought her to my house for one of these reunions and was kind enough to spend an inordinate amount of time letting my children play with her puppy. So it was very sweet. Really and my kids were absolutely in love with little Lila. <laughs> so <laughs> Emily is awesome and she's brilliant and an excellent therapist. And I'm really excited to have her share some of her wisdom and experience with us all today. So thank you so much for being here, Emily. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to, to chat and have a discussion. Yeah, it's going to be good. So let's start by having you share how you got into working as a speech therapist and specifically in the concussion space. Yeah, so it's a really interesting journey. And like you mentioned, I studied biology and neuroscience in Mandarin as an undergrad. Everyone would always ask, what are you going to do with those? They seem so disconnected. Yeah. And But they were all things I was really, really passionate about. And so I discovered my senior year speech language pathology. And it seemed to combine all of these things that really meant a lot to me. Mm. And it was, it was also interesting just in my experiences living in China and Bulgaria, there were many, many times I knew exactly what I wanted to say, but I didn't have the language to express myself in words. So I learned to use gestures, to talk around what I wanted to say, find creative ways to communicate. And that experience, while it's very different than the experience someone would have with aphasia after a brain injury gave me a lot of empathy for people who are in a similar situation of knowing exactly what they want to say, but it's just really, really hard to access those words. And I did a lot of research with MRI and EEG in grad school and just found everything with the brain and language and communication and cognition so fascinating. And so coming to work at CFX was a dream come true. Within speech therapy, working in the neurospace and cognitive rehab is my absolute favorite. <laughs> that is so cool. And how long have you been at CFX? Um, about three years, three and a half years. Yeah. So time flies. Very cool. So tell us a little bit more about your role as a cognitive therapist at CFX and at Cognitive FX. How do you and the other awesome cognitive therapists help people? Yeah, great question. So we help people through a couple different ways. What we mainly focus on at, at CFX is active rehabilitation exercises. 
And we will work on some strategies and compensatory strategies, but our main focus is on helping people strengthen different types of cognition that may have been impacted by a concussion or stroke or long COVID or a variety of different neurological things and try to find out what is it for them that's going to make the biggest difference. Um, And the goal of the therapy being not just to have them get really good at the exercises we're doing, but to help that generalize to their everyday life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. That's one of the things that I love about working there as well is just that it's, it isn't just compensatory. It's, we're not just like helping people deal with what it is, but like actually helping people improve. (laughs) And right. Right. It is very good. So how much did you know about concussions specifically prior to working at CFX? I understood a fair bit and I've learned so much more since starting. So with with my neuroscience coursework, we talked pretty extensively about stroke and head injury, um, but there wasn't as much focus on concussion and specifically how that's different than other types of head injuries. And it's been a really neat opportunity to get to learn even more about how the brain works and uh, different ways to help people recover. Yeah. Was there anything that surprised you as you came to learn more about concussions, especially, and have worked with clients? Uh, One interesting thing that I learned since working at Cognitive Effects is this concept of neurovascular coupling and how that plays such a key role in cognitive function. Essentially, um, the ability for different areas of the brain when they need to activate during cognitive tasks, be able to summon the resources that they need and for those resources to come. And it's been interesting to see just how concussion impacts people so differently. Uh, Some people might have more symptoms regarding their balance or their uh, vestibular, in other words, vision. Other people, it's a lot more cognitive, the types of things I work on. Uh, Maybe it's word finding or maybe it's, oh, you know, where did I put those keys? And those things happen in everyday life, but concussion, we see those things happen more often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is so interesting, the very broad variety of symptoms that can come up. And like, yeah, that that has been really interesting for me as well to observe that. it's not, it's not a cut and dry thing. (laughs) So it's so individualized and everybody's recovery process looks so different too, but there are still some general things that definitely apply to everybody. It's, it's very, it keeps us on our toes, but it's also super interesting and therapy can be very effective. So, um, so tell me, let's, let's address some of the more common cognitive um, issues that people experience. And maybe you could tell us how and why a concussion can affect these symptoms and what challenges people might experience because of them or because of the concussion. And I just, I like listed a few, um, but there may be some that I missed. So please fill in. (laughs) I'm just going to say them really quick. So memory, which can include the short term and the working memory and the long-term memory, and then planning and decision-making focus and attention and following directions Again, there's probably more. So tell us, tell us what we need to know about these different issues and yeah, what people might see from a concussion in relation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you pointed out so many different areas that can all be impacted by concussion. And one thing I, that I find really helpful to share with, with people asking like, Oh, why is this harder now is just talk a little bit about concussion and what happens in the brain during a concussion. Um, What are some things people might find afterwards and some strategies to help manage those symptoms overall. And and cognitive fatigue management is kind of a key piece Mm -hmm. that I see common in almost everyone who has post-concussion symptoms. Something we also see in long COVID stroke and to a degree in, in the population that hasn't experienced those things, but it's a lot more pronounced when someone has had a concussion or head injury. And when that concussion happens, there's several different types of concussions, but what we see in all of them is swelling in the brain and inflammation. And depending on how the brain is impacted by that, we'll often see parts of the brain compensating for other areas that have been impacted, which often leads to a lot more energy and resources being used. Um, more quickly than it did before. We see impacts to neurovascular coupling. And so you think of 
of cognitive energy, like a battery um, or like a thermometer going from zero to 10. 10 would be fully charged, feeling great. And what we see in the concussion world is that battery just drains faster than it would have pre-injury, whether it's conversations or being under fluorescent lights or anything that uses the brain, um, it starts to use that energy. And when people get to about a seven or eight on the scale, they'll start to notice some symptoms of cognitive fatigue. For some people, it's word finding. It becomes a bit harder. They're noticing headache. And, and some people have headache that's just long-standing, kind of a constant background headache. In that case, they just notice that headache going up a little bit. They might notice some dizziness or feeling emotionally a little bit on edge. And when they get to about that seven or eight, I'll typically recommend they take about five minutes to do a recovery exercise. We could spend hours and hours talking about different types of recovery exercises. Um, but uh, I won't get into those now. But the the benefit of taking those five minutes is that can either help stabilize those symptoms or best case scenario, help boost their energy level back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'll often see is if people continue pushing past those symptoms without taking time to do a recovery exercise, I'll get to about a three or four, which is this interesting place where the push too far, but might not realize it yet. And especially with a lot of people who come through cognitive effects, they're very motivated, very hardworking. And many people, myself included, love to just push through. Um, and it's, it's something a lot easier said than done. But when you get to that three to four level, um, symptoms have gone up at least three points on a 10 point scale. There might be some nausea creeping in, headaches just getting a lot more intense. And at that point, it's a good idea to take about 20 to 30 minutes Mm -hmm. to do a recovery exercise, again, to help stabilize symptoms or boost that energy back up. And what I'll see if people continue pushing past, we'll get to this one out of 10 where their cognitive energy is pretty drained and the brain is totally exhausted and it's so wound up, it's hard to fall asleep at night and it can take a couple of days to recover. Mm-hmm. And it tied into a lot of those different different levels of cognitive fatigue is cognitive symptoms like uh, memory could feel harder, finding words, it could be harder to focus, it can be harder to tune out background noise. A lot of those things you mentioned are just exacerbated a lot mm-hmm. when uh, that those cognitive energy levels are lower. And so taking that extra time in advance to sharpen the saw can be so helpful in helping decrease the severity of symptoms that someone's experiencing from a cognitive perspective. Um, and then after that, like very important piece, then we'll get into a lot of different exercises and strategies to help target those specific types of cognition. Hmm. Perfect. Can we, can we talk about some of those? Like when, when people are having trouble with, well, and actually really quick, I want to ask a couple questions about some of these with Uh memory. Do you find that people, is there one area of memory that tends to have the most problems after concussion within, you know, short-term working long-term are there, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what each of those means and, and tell us how, yeah, how concussion might impact them. Yeah, yeah. So with concussion or head injury, sometimes we'll see memory impacted, not people, and this is is more rare with the individuals I work with, but they might lose memory of things that happened before the head injury, or they might have a really hard time forming new memories after the head injury. And those would be some things that impact the long-term memory. There's a lot of changes that I'll typically see with attention that then impacts the ability to encode them for long term. But then that would be more of an intentional thing than necessarily something going on with the memory system. And I think that's an important point to make. Yeah, I don't, yeah that's not necessarily well-known fact, but it is, but it's true. <laughs> right. the, the attention piece absolutely impacts the the memory piece. And um, yeah. one of the things that I 
feel very passionate about is mindfulness. <laughs> and I talk oh. to people all the time. I think it's very helpful for emotional regulation and like nervous system destimulation. And I've, I've known that it was helpful for attention and focus, but it wasn't until a little bit later that I realized, oh, it's also good for memory because that, okay. that piece is so important. Attention is important. Oh, so, super interesting but sorry keep going yeah. yeah and it's it's fascinating like things like mindfulness or other attention exercises can be so so helpful in improving memory retrieval um because the better someone's able to focus on something the better they can store it it doesn't go in one ear and out the other and a continuing education course i took a few months ago it actually mentioned about 50 about 50% of memory is predicted by attention. And so improving attention is one of the most powerful ways to work on improving what we often perceive as a memory issue. Super interesting. That's that's cool. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like I, I know this, but I don't remember it perfectly. So maybe you can help me remember with, is there a difference between short-term memory and working memory or are they the same thing? They're very similar. There's a couple differences, but not significant enough that I'll really discuss them clinically with patients or anything like that. Like there's one that's a lot more involved with manipulating information, holding it in mind and manipulating it. And that would be that working memory, being able to work with that information and process it. And so a lot of times in sessions, I might give someone a sentence and put it in alphabetical order or reverse order or reverse alphabetical order if we want to really get intense there. And that's great, not only for building that sustained attention, helping them focus on something that might not be that intrinsically motivating for a long time, but also helping exercise that working memory part of the brain where they're working on strategies to keep that piece of information on the conveyor belt a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I like to imagine that working memory and short-term memory, kind of like a conveyor belt. And there's a couple things that people can do to keep it on the conveyor belt longer before the clerk takes it and sends it back to the store, the in one ear out the other, or puts mm -hmm. it in a grocery bag so they can take it home and put in their long-term storage. <laughs> but it can be things like repeating what they just heard out loud or visualizing it in their head. It can be using fingers and kinesthetic strategies. All of those can be really helpful in putting those things back at the beginning of the conveyor belt just let it go through the brain a little bit more and it is so interesting how engaging the different senses helps to solidify things in our brains <laughs> like like, yeah. using, like using your body your fingers using your like visual visualization system um or yeah repeating out loud like it it just it's super fascinating <laughs> how yeah multi-sensory our brains like to be so that's that's really cool thank you for those with planning I know like I've heard people talk about so many concerns that like packing for a trip even if it's a, a one night trip like it can feel completely overwhelming or you know like knowing what they like planning for the day like what they're going to be doing that day like what concerns have you seen people have with with that planning executive functioning piece and what strategies do you have to to help with those? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, I I love that you brought that up because I feel like that's one of the top concerns that people experience. And there's a couple different things that can be really helpful to work on improving those aspects of executive function. And one that I love sharing and one that I also use quite often myself is this principle of project planning. And one thing we'll, I'll see pretty often in the post-concussion world is people describe the butterfly effect, where they might start on one project, see something else that needs to be done. I'll kind of walk through an example. Maybe it's unloading the dishwasher. They unload the dishwasher. They see a pan. The handle's a little bit loose. Like, oh, I need a screwdriver. They go to get the screwdriver and they notice it's in their toolbox, but the toolbox is not organized the way they want. They start organizing the toolbox. They find something else is missing. And then at the end of the day, they've gone through this process multiple times and they've been busy the whole day long working on something every single minute of the day. And they look back, they're like, oh, like there's the dishwasher. It's still open. Mm. And they've been working on a lot, but it just hasn't moved the needle forward in the ways that they would have liked 
because there hasn't been that sustained attention on one thing. There's been a lot of shifting attention to multiple things. Mm-hmm. And so there's a couple things that can be helpful. So one thing might be taking a note card and writing down for each room of the house. Here's the different things I need to do to clean this room. Maybe even laminating it, having a you know a dry erase marker, you can check the pieces off mm-hmm. and having it be this, sustained attention exercise to go through that checklist, not move on until you finish each thing um, and then move on to the next room. Or it might be if someone's planning like moving, it might be planning out, okay, like here's all the things I need to do, getting all of those steps out of their head and onto paper. And the goal is just to get everything out of the brain. It doesn't need to be in order. And then after everything's on paper, then we'll go through and we'll order those items. Just give it a number one, two, three, four, five. Then take a brand new piece of paper, rewrite it in the order like it to have happened, and then go through and estimate how much time is each piece going to take. And if it's a question between, you know, oh, will this take 15 minutes or 30 minutes? We'll go with the 30 minutes because it's easier to uh, have some extra time than to make up lost time. And then take a planner. Um, I love paper planners because it like, for one, there can sometimes be some screen sensitivity post-concussion, but thing two, the process of physically writing something in the planner, it's that multi-sensory piece we're talking about, where it just helps improve like the memory of, okay, here's what I'm going to do and when. And so to write it down in that planner um, and focus on two to three things each day, planning around um, nutrition and meals and all those other things. There's so many things that we have to plan and think about. Right. (laughs) Right. I I too love paper planners. This is how I, how I roll. Yeah, no, those are really helpful. And again, interesting that the attention piece plays into planning. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. Let's talk real quick about decision-making. I imagine you've read the ghost in my brain. (laughs) Have you, have you read that one? I haven't. I'll have to check it out. I I think you would like it a lot. It's super interesting, but he talks about, and this is something that I've heard from other people, but his is kind of a more extreme case, but just where choosing, making a decision is so hard. And even if, and it seems like even the, like the simplest decisions are the hardest, almost like Uh between an apple or a sandwich, right? Like, or like, uh, and I, I had a conversation with a friend who on the podcast a few times ago, who was like, I, I just couldn't make decisions. And my, my family thought that I was just like being stubborn or like, like it, it just, it comes across as not, not what the person is experiencing. <laughs> I can see how people could get really frustrated, but the, you know, the person experiencing it is extremely frustrated as well. And it's something that I can't fully relate to. Decision-making is challenging for, has been challenging for me um, growing up in like, in my past, just like getting stuck between like all of the you know the possibilities and what and making it feel like such a big deal as to you know if I make this decision what is my whole future going to look like right Uh but but I don't think that's the the issue I don't I don't get that sense when I talk to people who have trouble with decision making it's just like there's a process in the brain that's just not working they can't decide it it, like Uh in the book he talks about just like calling a friend and being like should I eat the apple or the salami and he's like eat the apple first and then have the salami. And that was all he needed, but it took him days to make that decision and he couldn't uh-huh. until he called somebody. So have you seen stuff like that? Or like, do you, can you help us understand what's going on with that process and what people like any ideas for people who are having trouble with that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really key thing you hit on is decisions can feel a lot harder post head injury. And, and I think a big piece of it, and there's many things that play into it. And for each person, there's going to be different things. But I think one big piece is if working memory or attention and working memory have been impacted, where previous to the head injury, someone might say, well, you know, just have a subconscious process of, oh, here's the pros and cons of each decision. If there's been disruption to attention and working memory, we'll think, oh, you know, here's this option and the pros and cons. And here's this option, the pros and cons. But by the time they think of the second thing, the pros and cons have kind of disappeared for the first thing. And so things to work on attention, working memory and executive function exercises can all be helpful, active rehabilitation strategies. And so things like Sudoku and deduction puzzles, logic puzzles can be helpful. 
but like an like a functional strategy I also like to share with people is this really helpful tool. I learned it at my second externship in graduate school, working at an outpatient neurorehabilitation center. Um, and they referred to it as Benjamin Franklin decision-making. And this is especially helpful for bigger decisions that have more weight to it than you know eating an apple or salami first. But yeah. say someone's trying to choose, oh, you know, should I go to this university or that university? Or should I stay where I'm at or move to a new job? And then creating a four by four matrix and labeling one side uh, solution one, labeling the section second side solution two, then having the top row be pros, the bottom row be cons, and then writing out an equal number of pros for each option, then an equal number of cons for each option. And then going through and ranking each line item from one to 10, how important is it to you? Um, One being not very important, 10 being game-changingly important. And then after doing that for each of the line items, for each of the two solutions, you can then sum up, okay, how many pros are there? How many cons are there? For each one, you subtract the cons from the pros. And then at the bottom, you'll have a very objective measure of which one makes the biggest difference in your life. That's so cool. <laughs> Isn't it fun? <laughs> I've heard of pros and cons list, but that like it does, it makes it more objective. And that's a super interesting way to approach. Yeah. Yeah. So and I, I love it because like one, it helps get everything out of my head and onto paper. But then it also is it's just so visually powerful. Oh, you know, based on my core values, like this one is more closely aligned. And and with decisions like that, it can be helpful too to consult with like close friends and family members. But I just find that to be a really helpful tool to have in the toolkit to help out that is, with. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. myself. So Benjamin Franklin decision making is that something that he did or something? Why is it called that? You know, that's a great question. And I'm not sure that's just what we called it. But I I wouldn't be surprised if that's a method he had. So super interesting. Cool. Well, thank you for that. Okay, so two more really quick here. Following directions. Is that is that also an attention thing? Because I wanted to talk about attention. That's gonna be the the next the last one here, because it seems to be influencing everything. (laughs) But but yeah, is following directions something that people have trouble with extra trouble with after concussion? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and depending on the person, like for some people, they'll m- notice it more or less than others. There can be several different things playing into it. So some people might find written instructions easier to follow than verbal instructions. And that's actually what I'll see a lot of the time is verbal instructions become a lot more challenging. Um, and part of that is the auditory processing. There's the verbal comprehension. There's some processing speed. There's the attention to it. You know, so if someone, so if a boss is saying, hey, could you do this and then that? But if there's like a, I don't know, a bird that comes and smacks against the office window, um, you look to that and then, oh, what was that? Yeah. Or noises in the office that pull that attention away. That makes it a lot harder to follow those directions. Um, But I'll often see too. And and I, I think the more severe the um, the concussion or the head injury. Um, sometimes the more difficult that following directions piece will be, but working memory too, like how many items can someone keep in their working memory at a time? Um, sometimes that is something that can be impacted by concussion. And so to improve on following directions, but like a, a really easy to implement exercise that people could do at home is enlisting a friend or family member and starting out with practicing one-step directions. Maybe it's um, use your or uh, look at the ceiling. And then to make it a little bit harder, it could be something like use your right hand to point at the ceiling. And then move on to two-step directions um, and gradually making those two-step directions more complex. Um, and then three-step directions for a really good challenge, move into four-step directions. And, and multi-sensory things, you could throw some background noise in there, 
um, have someone waving their arms, being really visually distracting. And like with written following directions, like following a recipe can become a lot more challenging post-concussion. And so it might be something like starting with a recipe with fewer ingredients and fewer steps. It might be printing out the recipe so it's in a larger font with more space between each of the lines. It might be pulling out all of the materials you'll need to do the recipe before starting the recipe, Um, taking out all the ingredients, pots, pans, um, measuring cups, measuring spoons. And there's, there's a lot more we could get into with these, but yeah, no, I love this. I love how much OT and PT overlap as well. Like all these uh-huh. things, I'm like, oh yeah, these are things that I've done. <laughs> so it's so, yeah, it's so good and so important. And, and again, that attention and focus piece is so, so vital. Um, so let's talk about that for a second. Um, can you tell people what the term distraction suppression means? Yeah. So yeah, when I think of distraction suppression, I think of the brain's ability to filter out things that are important that aren't meaningful to the task at hand. So it might be going through an airport and being able to tune out all the noise of people going here and there, kids running, and to be able to look at the sign um, and find which way to go to get to your gate. It is, and it's something that's impacted a lot post-concussion. And there's multiple reasons for it. Um, Like sound mapping is a huge thing. Uh, We find at CFX is if someone perceives a sound is coming from one location, but it's actually coming from another that creates this cognitive dissonance in the brain. Um, So improving sound mapping can be really helpful. Um, But it can also be helpful just to give the brain extra practice and opportunities tuning out those distractions in a low stakes environment like therapy. So it's pretty common during therapy sessions, I'll turn on a variety of different types of background noise, you know, just on YouTube searching office sounds or playground noises or things that people are likely to come across in their everyday life to give them practice tuning that out. Yes, I love that. And it is, I have been very surprised at the random things that you can find on YouTube. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, rest, like <laughs> 10 hours of restaurant background noise. I'm like, mm-hmm. Who to this? <laughs> I mean, it's great. I, I use it. But why? <laughs> yeah. <I> <laughs> um, yeah, it's so funny. Um, so distraction suppression is super interesting and something that I feel like I get a lot of practice at with six kids in my house. I like I people come over and they're like, what is happening here? I'm like, oh, wait, what is, what is happening? I don't know. Like I, I think it all out. So <laughs> I'm a master at distracting depression. <laughs> right, I'm some, sometimes dangerously good at it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, I won't. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. It's not that bad, but it is like, it depends on, you know, the environments that you're in. And I think that could be something that is an interesting point too. When people, mm-hmm. a lot of times people are told, go like remove yourself from stimulation a sensory uh-huh. stimulation and and if they've been hiding in a dark room or away from people for a really long time like that would be extremely distressing <laughs> so oh, sure. it's, yeah it's it's one of those things you got to kind of balance and and baby step your way back into but but is definitely something that's an important cognitive skill and i imagine so distraction suppression and then you're talking about sustained attention and uh-huh. those are different things but both part of that focus and attention piece right can you talk a little bit more about sustained attention and any other pieces of attention that we should be aware of <laughs> definitely definitely and uh kind of going back to pieces of attention that we should be aware of one thing i always point out to people is there's a difference between practice and performance mm-hmm. and so with the divided uh distraction suppression Things I was mentioning earlier, putting on background noise, that's great for cognitive practice. Um, I recommend when people are in performance situations, like if it's at work or they're studying for a big test, then they want to get into performance mode, get rid of all distractions possible, be in a place that's clean, quiet, kind of primed for that um, peak focus mode. And this point. I remember um, doing swim team in high school and in the couple of weeks leading up to regionals and just bigger swim events, our coach would have us wear nylons and leggings. We weren't allowed to shave. Like we're doing all we could to put our bodies in this worst case scenario so that when we were in performance mode, one, we would just feel really fast. It's a great psychological boost, but then we're also prepared 
um, we've been working against greater resistance. So it actually need to perform in. So um, I kind of take that approach with a lot of the exercises too. And, and then going back to that sustained attention piece, um, that's one where um, it's the brain ability to focus for longer and longer and longer amounts of time. Um, and so in exercises in the clinic, uh, I might start out with someone doing 10 reps of the exercise and then we'll work up to maybe even we'll start with five reps and we'll, you know, work throughout the next sessions to get to 10 reps, 15, um, and so on. And if it's someone in the case of trying to get back to work or go back to school might be gradually increasing how much time they focus on a study exercise. And there's several different things out there. There's like the Pomodoro method, um, or it might look like something like setting a timer for five minutes and you're like, okay, for the next five minutes, I'm going to exclusively read this chapter on exercise science. Um, it might be staying at five minutes for a week. And then, okay, like next week, I'm going to move up to six minutes. Um, during that six minutes, I'm not going to leave this chapter for anything unless it's fire fled, um, <laughs> something like that. And as people build that sustained endurance, um, muscle per se, um, it can be really, really helpful in helping other types of cognition improve as well. Mm, yes. So. And like we said, it, it just impacts everything. So right, right. you mentioned the Pomodoro method. What is that? It's let me do a quick Google here. It's not something I necessarily have been encouraging people to follow religiously, but it's a helpful focus strategy um and you can get just on the google store pomodoro timers and i might be totally slaughtering the name where it'll give you a timer say for 25 minutes and then there will be a break and so it basically takes the pressure of self-timing off of the person puts it onto the timer then mm. they know when after those 25 minutes or five minutes or whatever it is, they have a break. And then after that breaks up, they get to go back to whatever the task is at hand. Mm. But something that I will encourage people to do going along with kind of like that process of cognitive exercise and then taking some recovery time is to even just set up a timer on the smartwatch uh, mm. to go off once per hour. And then there will be a five minute recovery time. And then it takes off the pressure of trying to always be monitoring symptoms. And it can be helpful starting to do that even earlier in the morning when people might be feeling great, not as symptomatic. And, and proactively taking those recovery exercises can be so helpful for extending energy later on in the day. Yes, I love that point. And I think it's a very important one to be proactive and not necessarily not only reactive to the symptoms that are coming. Right. Up. It really can't. You you do have the ability to extend your capacity by taking care of yourself in that way ahead of time. So right. Big difference. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing all those. Those are, I think, really important and helpful. Um, and I, I think that we might have missed one. I, if you have any um, strategies or recommendations for people who want to improve their working short-term memory, do you have anything that you'd like to share on that piece? Uh, yeah, and that's a great thing to bring up. So in terms of working on memory, from all the research I've done, it's something that's really tricky to work on directly through active recovery exercises. Um, the most helpful things are memory strategies and attention exercises. But in terms of memory strategies that can be helpful for uh, getting things into that short-term working memory um, and also helpful for encoding in long-term memory it can be things like involving as many senses as possible. So saying something out loud so the brain gets to hear it again, teaching it to someone else or yeah. repeating it to someone else can be really helpful. Visualizing it, making an association to something that's meaningful to you. And even, uh, you know, quick, tiny little review sessions. So for example, like one thing people mention a lot is, oh, you know, remembering a name is so hard. Even just short term within the conversation, you know, 10 seconds after someone's mentioned their name, it's gone. And one thing that can be really helpful for that is just including some of those strategies we were just chatted about. 
So maybe someone introduces themselves as Hannah in the instant talk. You're like, oh, who else do I know named Hannah? Oh, I have a sister named Hannah. And you could even say it to that person. Mm-hmm. And then in the getting to know you questions, find sneaky ways to work in that person's name. And that will not only help you remember it more, keep it in that short-term and working memory long enough so that it hopefully gets into the long-term, but it also really helps that person feel really valued and special and things like that. Yes, there's a lady in my ward um, or in my neighborhood here who moved in recently and she, you know, we met each other and I think we, this is like maybe the second or third time we met each other and we were like, okay, I'm going to get your name down this time. <laughs> and we were like, it was really funny because we were just like, hi, Tammy. She's like, hi, Bethany. And then we would like say something else. And uh, yes, Tammy. And, like it was exactly what you're saying. <laughs> like oh, love that. very intentional. We were both like, <laughs> kind of joking, but it, it was very helpful. I remember her name. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, I love that. I it can love be, that. It's, it's a, it's a, it's effective. (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to say like with numbers, for example, like one thing all of us experience is this two-factor authentication and this big old long number will just come in a text message. And what I'll typically do is just look at it a time, a couple times, but there's some things you can do to help boost like that short-term working memory with numbers. And so think about phone numbers, they have this rhythm built in. Um, They're chunked into two pieces. Um, like 353-3732 and taking that approach of adding rhythm and uh, breaking things into small pieces can be really helpful with numbers. So just wanted to throw that in because it was something that just uh, came to mind. Yeah, no, that's, I think, really important. And I think it's it's important to know too, yeah, like rhythm and putting things to song or like... Uh-huh. It's so, so powerful. So <laughs> powerful. I mean, I remember I was... I, had somebody say something and it triggered something. I like brought up this song and I was like, from my childhood, I don't even remember what it was at this point, <laughs> um, but it was like, I was like, what the heck? Where did that come from? How do I uh-huh. remember that? Songs are, songs are powerful. And, but yeah, even just the rhythm can be very helpful. That's how I help my kids memorize my phone number. <laughs> like they all, they all can sing it to me, which is great. Um, but I, I think this also brings up an important point that how we put things into our brain influences how we're able to retrieve them and being very intentional about that. So, you know, if you're meeting somebody and you're not thinking, I need to remember their name, then it's very possible (laughs) that it will not stick. But if you're, like you're saying, if you're very intentional about it, like, okay, how can I make a connection there with somebody that I know or something, or how can I like repeat the name over and over again? Like those kinds of things make it so that you're much more likely (laughs) to remember it. So that intentionality piece is really, really important. And then just a couple other thoughts that I've had on like the memory stuff is this was super interesting to me and something that I really wish that I had known prior to or when I was still in school. But the brain likes to see the big picture first and then fill in the details. And so, you know, for students who are in school, if they have a a chapter book or, um, you know, a textbook that they're reading and it has a, a chapter summary at the end or they're reading an article and it has the abstract or whatever like reading the the summary that gives you the big picture and then going through and reading all of, like the section headings kind of creates almost like file folders in your brain <laughs> and then you can and then you can go through and read the details and that way it all fits you see where the the details fit into the bigger picture and it helps to solidify everything so which, powerful yeah and i was like oh that's so cool i really wish i had known that yeah. <laughs> yeah. i tend to get caught in details and so having that yeah you can see how the bigger picture would make a difference there but Love that. Um, and that reminds me of an analogy someone i worked with shared i can't remember whether it was a, a mentor or one of my professors in grad school but they just mentioned this idea of a filing system in the brain and that concussion or head injury, the experience is kind of like going to get something from a file. But when you get to the room with the files, it's like someone's kind of riffled through the cabinets. Maybe some files are on the floor or in different cabinets or papers, different places. And what, something that breaks my heart working with different people is they'll sometimes mention, you know, after the concussion or head injury, like, I just, I'm not smart anymore. Or, and, and one thing I just love to remember remind people is that this concussion does not impact your intelligence at all. You like, you are still smart and intelligent and you're just working a lot harder because something's gone through those filing cabinets. And, and like you said, like that intentionality of extra organization post head injury just helps in that process of um, putting those files back in a good order and and there is so much hope for recovery and continued progress and and I, I think just noticing those small wins of oh you know I was extra intentional about my studies 
and I was able to remember it better are so important. Yes, that's so important. Thank you for sharing that and bringing that up. I love that perspective. And I think it's helpful. You know, you have seen it so many times. You've worked with so many people that it's it's good to it's good to hear that from someone who knows. So thank you for sharing that. And I, I want to ask you about the like the brain based or the computer based brain games like mm-hmm. Lumosity, Brain HQ, those kinds of things. Are there? Do you have thoughts on those? Are those helpful? Is that a thing that you would recommend that people look into? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I think there's lots of really great things that both of those bring to the table. People can work on a variety of different cognitive tasks within those apps. I'd say the downside would be if someone's struggling with some screen sensitivity, then I would likely recommend some paper-based exercises instead. And to always follow the 20-20-20 rule. So if you've spent 20 minutes looking at the screen, take 20 seconds and look at something 20 feet away. Mm -hmm. That is an important one. Thank you for bringing that up. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) <laughs> that is really, really, really important for the screen sensitivity and light sensitivity. Are there other apps or games or, you know, paper uh, yeah. ones that you recommend that people use if if they're concerned about their cognitive function? Yeah. And I'll have to say I'm a little bit biased about this one, um, but I've recently been putting together some workbooks of deduction puzzles because a lot of times at the end of treatment, we'll be walking through the home exercise plan. People ask, oh, you know, where can I find some more of these deduction puzzles? And so I've just been putting together a resource, paper-based, that people can do on their own. Um, And it's designed to have a little bit of something for everyone. So say in the case of a more severe head injury, there's deduction puzzles that might have two rows or two columns in one row. And then we work all the way up to ones that are really, really complex and have all kinds of algebra and different types of logic and, and reasoning. And working on putting together some other resources, again, all like either paper-based or manipulative-based, meaning something you can hold and is not screen-based. And they're in pre-order phase right now, uh, but just available at the website, cognitivebraingames.com. And so anyways, I'm really excited to have this resource available And another thing that's really important to me is like all these resources are designed specifically for people who have had brain injuries or long COVID, not only to help in their recovery, but also a portion of all the proceeds go to support charities and nonprofits that help people who have had brain injuries and concussions. And so it's been a really fun project to work on. That's the coolest thing ever. I love it. I'm so excited for it. And I think that will be fantastic for people. So I love, I love that you're, you saw a need and are making that happen. That's so great. And, and yeah, the, the charity piece of it is really important too. I love, love that you're doing that. Thanks for, oh. thanks for making that happen. <laughs> yeah. So if people want to access it, they can go to that website. We'll put it in the show notes and yeah, that's fantastic. So what suggestions we're going to move on to another section here. What suggestions yeah. do you have for people who have cognitively intense jobs and whose symptoms spike because of that cognitive demand at work? Oh, yeah. Great, great question. And I think there's always going to be some individual adaptations. So if anyone is in this situation, like the things that I'll share generally will be helpful, but definitely feel free to reach out to someone who specializes in cognitive rehab if you want to find things that are specifically tailored for you and the particular demands of your job or work or study. And there's a couple of things generally that can be really helpful. The one might be um, scheduling in those recovery breaks, like we talked about before. So say someone's working in the online space, maybe it's setting their Zoom meetings for 50 minutes instead of for an hour. Or for people who are working in an office, it might look like going to the drinking fountain or taking a bathroom break, something that wouldn't necessarily be perceived by people around them as slacking off but still gives their brain an opportunity to recover. Uh, Diaphragmatic breathing is another really helpful strategy because especially in those high demand cognitive jobs, it's really easy to get into this sympathetic stress state. When that happens, breathing typically moves to the shoulders. It's more shallow. Um, Sometimes there's more mouth breathing and all of those increase the sympathetic And so it can be helpful to bring the body back into parasympathetic by breathing in and out through the nose, doing longer exhales, shorter inhales, 
and having the breathing come through the stomach and diaphragm rather than the shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be really helpful for reducing stress and burnout and increasing cognitive energy. Right. Such an important thing to mention, I think, for everybody. Like <laughs> That's just yeah. reward, good advice, but then, particularly uh, helpful for our patients. That's, that's oh, excellent. For sure. For sure. And another thing I recommend is if someone's cleared by their doctor for exercise to do some type of cardio because in the morning or during their lunch break, because there's a two to three hour window where there's this post-exercise cognitive boost that happens. And so just even having a brisk walk during lunch break or before work can be really helpful as well. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. All so important and super interesting. Uh, yeah, we could go into like all the details of all of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of all these things for like ten more hours. And so I know. Yeah. <laughs> we just gotta keep it keep it concise here. But I I do appreciate uh, you bringing up all of those things. Those are so important and really good, helpful and actionable items to do for people. So what what advice do you have for the support people? So like. How can family members or loved ones help someone with a concussion who's dealing with cognitive challenges? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. And I think one of the most helpful things from an emotional perspective is to be there for them and to also be there for yourself because caregivers and and support uh, family members, they're already doing so much. Um, So to remember to take some time for themselves too. They're feeling burned out. to use some of these strategies we talked about for them as well. And just becoming more educated about concussion can be really helpful because it it can be pretty common for people who have had a concussion or head injury just to feel isolated because there there's a lot of misconceptions out there about head injury. And is it real or is it all in your head? Or are you making it up? And so just to help validate those symptoms can be so powerful for them while also not getting into a place where they're doing things for their friend or family member that their friend or family member could do for themselves. Because if some someone can do something for themselves, they should. We don't want to get into the place of becoming that person's crutch. And so finding a balance between pushing them hard and not too hard and being there and emotionally validating and just a listening ear and friend to lean on. Yeah. Oh, and that's, I don't know, even as just as you were saying, I was like, oh man, that's gotta be such a hard balance. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there's like so many like um, support groups out there for family members and caregivers. And, and those are great resources as well. It's not an easy journey for someone who's had a concussion and it's not an easy journey for someone who's supporting someone with concussion. Yeah. Yes. And I think, yeah, those support groups are really important. I think that's a great place where people could, you know, talk to people about like, okay, what is pushing too hard or what is letting them, you know, what, how much do I, uh, you know, support and just encourage and like allow people to be where they're at versus when do we, when and how do we encourage people to push themselves more or whatever. Or uh, I think, I think to just the safety default would just be to love and listen. <laughs> and, I love that. And yes. <laughs> but it is, I think the family members can be an incredible support. And sometimes people do need some encouragement and help. And like, you know, they'll, they'll do better if they are given a little bit of a push. So it's, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a balance and there's so many dynamics. Like, I think it's definitely not something that we can just say, you should always do this, <laughs> but right. Um, right. Approach with, with prayer and love and a, and an open heart <laughs> to know how right. to, manage those kinds of things. And I think something too, you know, we kind of touched on before is just the the person is struggling so much themselves. They might be feeling like they're stupid all of a sudden. They might feel like they, you know, they know to some degree that I think there's a lot of lack of (laughs) self-awareness with the brain injury too. They might not really understand how impacted they are, but to some degree, I think a lot of people recognize that there are deficits, that they can't do the things that they used to, that they're not showing up the way that they want to as a, as a spouse or as a parent or as a child, you know, like they're, or as a student, whatever they're, they're feeling that themselves. And so uh-huh. like, just, and just like loving and having all the patience with them and knowing that they're, they're struggling too. And then, yeah, taking care of your own needs as a, as a support person, because can't pour from an empty cup, <laughs> which I've said more than once on this podcast before, but yeah. 
so, so so perfectly and powerfully. Thanks. So tell me, I think we we touched on and you've mentioned a few and I love them, but is there any other recovery exercises that you think are especially helpful for, again, it could be support people or or the patients, uh-huh. things that you want to make sure that people are aware are options? Oh yeah, there, that's a great question. And I feel like there's so many different opportunities out there, whether it's working with a um, speech language pathologist who focuses in cognitive rehab, um, occupational therapists also offer a like, oh, there's so much overlap between our fields or physical therapists. I, I would say your recovery is, is a really valuable and important way to invest back into yourself and, and finding ways to actively work on recovery could be something as simple as, you know, just working on at home, the different things we chatted about on the podcast. Um, or things that have been recommended by other speech pathologists or occupational therapists, doctors, but that you are worth investing in. And just to continue having hope that um, things can improve and can get better. There, There was a study one of my professors mentioned in grad school looking at individuals who had stroke, I believe. And he mentioned that... Um, you know, historically in the medical community, there had been this misconception that there's about one year of recovery. And then after that, that's kind of the, right where you hit a plateau. And and just what we know about the brain is that's so far from true. There's so much neuroplasticity that happens. And in this particular study, they looked at 13 plus years, people continue to make improvements. So just know that there is, is hope out there. And and, and don't be afraid to ask for help or support from friends, family members, professionals. It's got a community that cares and wants to help. Yes. Oh, beautifully said. Thank you. And that's, I, I love that you brought that hope piece in because that really is why, why this podcast exists and why, like, what's driving me in this because I do feel like there is so much hope and uh, not a lot of um, knowledge, like broad knowledge of it. <laughs> like people right. don't always get told that, Hey, there is hope for recovery. Keep going. Um, yeah. It's, okay. This is your new normal. Get used to it. So this is, yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up and, and that, that hope can make all the difference. <laughs> like if people believe that there's a possibility, then they'll work towards it. If they don't, then they don't. And that's, and then they're stuck for real. So it just definitely, it can make all the difference in the world. So thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> and if there's anything else about concussions or cognition or anything that you want to throw out there at the end here, we'd love to hear it. And also if you want to share with us how people can contact you or get in touch with you if they want to hear more, or again, maybe repeat where they can get uh, that. Yeah, yeah, for so. sure. And I feel like I could stay on the line for like 20 more hours. We could just have a <laughs> marathon just talking about concussions and head injuries and things like that. But um, to be supportive to you and your listeners, let's not do that. But I would love to be in touch if anyone does have any specific questions about anything I've um, chatted about or is interested in accessing some of those deduction and logic puzzles, which by the way, some cool things with research have looked at what exercises can be most impactful for the brain. And they've found that executive function exercises are especially helpful because they've been shown to generalize to things outside of that exercise themselves. So with these deduction puzzle books, we don't want you to get just really good at doing deduction puzzles and logic puzzles, but to have it transferred to decision-making and logical reasoning things in everyday life. So yeah, the website for that is cognitivebraingames.com. And uh, they're called Puzzles with a Purpose. Would love if you want to check them out. Love feedback if there's any new types of puzzles you'd like to see. So I'm always working on putting new materials together. And um, this first book of logic puzzles will help people figure out what difficulty level of deduction puzzles is the perfect level to push them hard, but not too hard. And then over the next couple months, I'll be putting together um, several, like 10 to 12 different levels of specific books that people can have if they want to go really, really deep into mm-hmm. moving things to the next level on executive function perspective. So oh, fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much. So they can go to that website and uh-huh. can they contact you through that as well? Or is there another, a better way to, to be in touch with you? 
Yeah. Yep. So they can um, contact me through that website at cognitivebraingames.com. Awesome. Well, Emily, thank you so much for being here and sharing all of this. I think this will be really helpful. I've learned a lot and I'm excited about (laughs) applying some of the things that you've taught me. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Glad to be here. So, and I guess if we've got any Instagram users out there, I do have a SLP profile where people can just DM me. That's more convenient. Okay. It's Emily Peterson underscore SLP. Perfect. Okay. And I will, we'll put those in the show notes as well. So if people want to just click on it, that'll be easier, but, but definitely look up Emily. She's amazing. <laughs> as you oh. from this conversation. So, Thank you so much, Emily. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you listened in today. I hope you've gained some helpful insights and inspiration regarding dealing with and recovering from concussions. My goal is to create more awareness and education about concussions and the fact that there is so much that can be done to improve life after someone has had one. Help me spread the message by liking, commenting, rating, and subscribing to this podcast and share it with others who would benefit from hearing it. There are more resources available on my website. And again, if you or someone you love would benefit from concussion coaching, sign up for a free consultation using the link in the show notes or at my website, www.theconcussioncoach.com. Thank you. See you next time and take good care of that amazing brain of yours.